Chapter 3 of Our Village, Volume 1, by Mary Russell Mitford, read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, 2020. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume 1, Chapter 3, Hannah. The prettiest cottage on our village green is a little dwelling of Dame Wilson's. It stands in a corner of the common where the hedgerows go curving off into a sort of bay round a clear, bright pond, the earliest haunt of the swallow. A deep, woody green lane, such as Hobbima or Risedale may have painted, a lane that hints of nightingales, forms one boundary of the garden, and a sloping meadow on the other, whilst the cottage itself, a low, thatched, irregular building, backed by a blooming orchard, and covered with honeysuckle and jessamine, looks like the chosen abode of snugness and comfort. And so it is. Dame Wilson was a respected servant in a most respectable family where she passed all the early part of her life, and which she quitted only on her marriage with a man of character and industry, and of that peculiar universality of genius which forms what is called, in country phrase, a handy fellow. He could do any sort of work, was thatcher, carpenter, bricklayer, painter, gardener, gamekeeper, everything by turns and nothing long. No job came amiss to him. He killed pigs, mended shoes, cleaned clocks, doctored cows, dogs and horses, and even went as far as bleeding and drawing teeth in his experiments on the human subject. In addition to these multifarious talents, he was ready, obliging and unfearing, jovial withal and fond of good fellowship, and endowed with a promptness of resource which made him the general adviser of the stupid, the puzzled and the timid. He was universally admitted to be the cleverest man in the parish, and his death, which happened about ten years ago, in consequence of standing in the water, drawing a pond for one neighbour, at a time when he was overheated by loading hay for another, made quite a gap in our village commonwealth. John Wilson had no rival, and has had no successor, for the Robert Ellis, whom certain youngsters would fain exalt to a co-partnery of fame, is simply nobody. A bell-ringer, a ballad-singer, a troller of profane catches, a fiddler, a bruiser, a loller on ale-house benches, a teller of good stories, a mimic, a poet. What is all this to compare with the solid parts of John Wilson? Whose clock hath Robert Ellis cleaned? Whose windows hath he mended? Whose dog hath he broken? Whose pigs hath he ringed? Whose pond hath he fished? Whose hay hath he saved? Whose cow hath he cured? Whose calf hath he killed? Whose teeth hath he drawn? And whom hath he bled? Tell me that, irreverent whipsters. No, John Wilson is not to be replaced. He was missed by the whole parish, and most of all he was missed at home. His excellent wife was left the sole guardian and protector of two fatherless girls, one an infant at her knee, the other a pretty handy lass about nine years old. Cast thus upon the world, there must have been much to endure, much to suffer, but it was borne with a smiling patience, a hopeful cheeriness of spirit and a decent pride, which seemed to command success as well as respect in their struggle for independence. Without assistance of any sort, 
by needlework, by washing and mending lace and fine linen, and other skilful and profitable labours, and by the produce of her orchard and poultry, Dame Wilson contrived to maintain herself and her children in their old comfortable home. There was no visible change. She and the little girls were as neat as ever. The house had still within and without the same sunshiny cleanliness, and the garden was still famous over all other gardens for its cloves and stocks and double wallflowers. But the sweetest flower of the garden, the joy and pride of her mother's heart, was her daughter Hannah. Well might she be proud of her. At sixteen, Hannah Wilson was beyond a doubt the prettiest girl in the village and the best. Her beauty was quite in a different style from the common country rosebud, far more choice and rare. Its chief characteristic was modesty. A light, youthful figure, exquisitely graceful and rapid in all its movements, springy, elastic and buoyant as a bird, and almost as shy. A fair, innocent face with downcast blue eyes, and smiles and blushes coming and going almost with her thoughts. A low, soft voice, sweet even in its monosyllables a dress remarkable for neatness and propriety, and borrowing from her delicate beauty an air of superiority not its own. Such was the outward woman of Hannah, modest, graceful, gentle and affectionate, grateful and generous above all. The generosity of the poor is always a very real and fine thing. They give what they want, and Hannah was of all poor people the most generous. She loved to give, it was her pleasure, her luxury. Rosy-cheeked apples, plums with the bloom on them, nosegays of cloves and blossomed myrtle. These were offerings which Hannah delighted to bring to those whom she loved, or those who had shown her kindness. Whilst to such of her neighbours as needed other attentions than fruit and flowers, she would give her time, her assistance, her skill for Hannah inherited her mother's dexterity in feminine employments and something of her father's versatile power. Besides being an excellent laundress, she was accomplished in all the arts of the needle, millinery, dressmaking and plain work, a capital cutter-out, an incomparable mender, and endowed with a gift of altering which made old things better than new. She had no rival at rifacimento, as half the turned gowns on the common can witness. As a dairywoman and a rearer of pigs and poultry, she was equally successful. None of her ducks and turkeys ever died of neglect or carelessness, or, to use the phrase of the poultry-yard on such occasions, of ill luck. Hannah's fowls never dreamed of sliding out of the world in such an ignoble way. They all lived to be killed, to make a noise at their deaths as chickens should do. She was also a famous scholar, kept accounts, wrote bills, read letters and answered them, was a trusty accomptant and a safe confidant. There was no end to Hannah's usefulness or Hannah's kindness, and her prudence was equal to either. Except to be kind or useful, she never left her home, attended no fairs or revels or mayings, went nowhere but to church and seldom made a nearer approach to rustic revelry than by standing at her own garden gate on a Sunday evening with her little sister in her hand to look at the lads and lasses on the green. In short, our village beauty had fairly reached her twentieth year without a sweetheart, 
without the slightest suspicion of her ever having written a love-letter on her own account, when all on a sudden appearances changed. She was missing at the accustomed gate, and one had seen a young man go into Dame Wilson's, and another had descried a trim elastic figure walking not unaccompanied down the shady lane. Matters were quite clear. Hannah had gotten a lover, and when poor little Susan, who, deserted by her sister, ventured to peep rather nearer to the gay group, was laughingly questioned on the subject, the hesitating no and the half yes of the smiling child were equally conclusive. Since the new marriage act, and it is almost unnecessary to observe that this little story was written during the short life of that whimsical experiment in legislation, well, since the new marriage act, we who belong to country magistrates have gained a priority over the rest of the parish in matrimonial news. We, the privileged, see on a workday the names which the Sabbath announces to the generality. Many a blushing, awkward pair hath our little lame clerk, a sorry Cupid, ushered in between dark and light to stammer and hacker, to bow and curtsy, to sign or make a mark, as it pleases heaven. One Saturday, at the usual hour, the limping clerk made his appearance, and walking through our little hall, I saw a fine athletic young man, the very image of health and vigour, mental and bodily, holding the hand of a young woman, who with her head half buried in a geranium in the window, was turning bashfully away, listening, and yet not seeming to listen, to his tender whispers. The shrinking grace of that bending figure was not to be mistaken. Hannah! And she went aside with me, and a rapid series of questions and answers conveyed the story of the courtship. William was, said Hannah, a journeyman hatter in B-town. He had walked over one Sunday evening to see the cricketing, and then he came again. Her mother liked him, everybody liked her William, and she had promised, oh, she, she was going. Was it wrong? Oh, no. And where are you to live? Oh, William has got a room in B-town. He works for Mr. Smith, the rich hatter in the marketplace, and Mr. Smith speaks of him oh so well. But William will not tell me where our room is. I suppose in some narrow street or lane, which he is afraid I shall not like, as our common is so pleasant. He little thinks anywhere. <laughs> she stopped suddenly, but her blush and clasped hands finished the sentence. Anywhere with him. And when is the happy day? On Monday fortnight, madam, said the bridegroom-elect, advancing with the little clerk to summon Hannah to the parlour the earliest day possible. He drew her arm through his, and we parted. The Monday fortnight was a glorious morning, one of those rare November days when the sky and the air are soft and bright as in April. What a beautiful day for Hannah, was the first exclamation of the breakfast table. Did she tell you where they should dine? No, ma'am, I forgot to ask. I can tell you said the master of the house, with somewhat of good-humoured importance in his air, somewhat the look of a man who, having kept a secret as long as was necessary, is not sorry to get rid of the burden. I can tell you. In London. 
In London? Yes, your little favourite has been in high luck. She has married the only son of one of the best and richest men in B-Town, Mr. Smith the Great Hatter. It's quite a romance, continued he. William Smith walked over one Sunday evening to see a match at cricket. He saw our pretty Hannah and forgot to look at the cricketers. After having gazed his fill, he approached to address her, and the little damsel was off like a bird. William did not like her the less for that, and thought of her the more. He came again and again, and at last contrived to tame this wild dove, and even to get the entree of the cottage. Hearing Hannah talk is not the way to fall out of love with her, so William, at last finding his case serious, laid the matter before his father, and requested his consent to the marriage. Mr. Smith was at first a little startled, but William is an only son, and an excellent son, and after talking with me and looking at Hannah, I believe her sweet face was the more eloquent advocate of the two, he relented, and, having a spice of his son's romance, finding that he had not mentioned his situation in life, he made a point of it being kept secret till the wedding day. We have managed the business of settlements, and William, having discovered that his fair bride has some curiosity to see London, a curiosity, by the by, which I suspect she owes to you or poor Lucy, intends taking her thither for a fortnight. He will then bring her home to one of the best houses in B-Town, a fine garden, fine furniture, fine clothes and fine servants, and more money than she will know what to do with. Really, the surprise of Lord E.'s farmer's daughter, when, thinking she had married his steward, he brought her to Burley and installed her as its mistress, could hardly have been greater. I hope the shock will not kill Hannah, though, as is said to have been the case with that poor lady. Oh, no! Hannah loves her husband too well. Anywhere with him. <laughs> and I was right. Hannah has survived the shock. She is returned to B-Town, and I have been to call on her. I never saw anything so delicate and bride-like as she looked in her white gown and her lace mob, in a room light and simple and tasteful and elegant, with nothing fine except some beautiful greenhouse plants. Her reception was a charming mixture of sweetness and modesty, a little more respectful than usual, and far more shamefaced. Poor thing! Her cheeks must have pained her. But this was the only difference. In everything else, she is still the same Hannah, and has lost none of her old habits of kindness and gratitude. She was making a handsome matronly cap, evidently for her mother, and spoke, even with tears, of her new father's goodness to her and to Susan. She would fetch the cake and wine herself, and would gather, in spite of all remonstrance, some of her choicest flowers as a parting nosegay. She did indeed just hint at her troubles with visitors and servants. How strange and sad it was! Seemed distressed at ringing the bell, and visibly shrank from the sound of a double knock. But in spite of these calamities, Hannah is a happy woman. The double rap was her husband's and the glow on her cheek and the smile of her lips and eyes when he appeared spoke more plainly than ever anywhere 
with him. End of chapter 3